Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Well, good evening and welcome to another Word in Your Ear podcast, which we're recording as ever in the convivial The Islington Pub in London's uh, swinging N1 district. And I'm Mark Ellen and he's Dave Hepworth. Now, back in the autumn of 1973, Mike Oldfield claimed that having been seen as some village idiot, I'm now suddenly everyone's greatest hero. A transition that involves bagpipe guitars, a vintage Bentley, emotional meltdown, endless pints of Guinness, Viv Stanchel, and the birth of Virgin Records. So here to help map out this extraordinary story of Tubular Bells uh, on its 45th anniversary, please welcome the author Richard Newman. And Richard, your book, um, The Making of Mike Oldfield's Tubular Bells, actually came out uh, on the 20th anniversary, didn't it? It was on 1993? It, yeah, I did it for Music Maker Books. Um, and basically what happened is they asked me to do a lot of things. I wrote a book about the Cambridge Folk Festival for Ken Willard. And actually another funny story, a book about John Mao, which basically only happened because... John wouldn't speak to Neville Martin and they were panicking and they, he phoned me up and he said, you're the only person I can think of could do it. But then they got bought out, um, music maker by future publications, and they didn't want to do book publishing. So basically the book never came out in bookshops or stuff like that. But this came out in 93, didn't it? And what, what, how old were you when the record came out in 73? I, I, was in twi- I was 23 when the record came out and so it was on the 20th anniversary that I did the interviews with Mike and Tom and Simon. And up until that point, so I've been told, no independent journalist independent, had ever spoken to the three of them about the making of it. I'm not talking about the music, the actual making of it and the building of the Manor Studios and the origin of Virgin Records. That was me. And what kind of impact did it have on you? Because, I mean, I can remember. I was a, t- t- a teenager. I can remember it coming out everywhere you went. It, it was yeah. playing in restaurants. It was playing in boutiques. It was playing in as you used to call them. Playing boutiques. in cafes. Boutiques. Yeah, no, it, 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 <laughs> did you ever go in a boutique? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, well, I, I just stood outside and listened to tubular bells. <laughs> well, when I was in a boutique... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, it's... Uh, um, I mean, my background is... Uh, 
I always wanted to work in recording studios, and I was already doing that. But I loved Joe Meek, who was a great producer and very atmospheric. I always loved atmospheric music, like, you know, tracks like Renadine by Bert Jans and things like that. And I suppose I was a sitting duck for it. When I heard it, I just... It just sounded mythological to me and very emotional, and I just loved it. I just loved it. And Can I, you remember where you heard it? Yeah. Go on. Where did you hear it? Paul Purton's flat. Oh, right. <laughs> Paul. Paul Purton, yeah. So was Paul Paul an early adopter, was he? he was yeah, a, he was a kind of guy. We all knew each first. other, but, I mean, I, I was, well, obviously, Dark Side of the Moon had come out, and, you know, that was interesting. And, um, but suddenly, you're right, you know, it was suddenly it was there, it was everywhere. Fran told me, who did photographs in his book, a great story, she was at Sheffield Art School, and suddenly one day he said, we're going in that van, we're going to go and get that mini, we're going, we're going, and she said, well, where are we going, where are we going? And he said, no, we've got to go over to this guy's house, he's got a copy of Tubular Bells. So it was almost like mania, and it freaked Mike out, completely freaked right. him out when it started happening. So what do you know about his early life? Because yeah, I mean, he, he was he born, he born in Reading, and he was brought up in Essex, and he had quite a big family, and I think his yeah. mum was a nurse, and his Dad was a GP, is that That's right? it. He was born in a battle. So what kind of, yeah, what kind of childhood did he have? Because we're going to get on to it in a moment. What a, um, what an interesting bloke. He was a very strange guy, actually. I think he, his, his childhood was about making a space for himself in his own head because it was unfortunate for him that things weren't always good at home. So I think early on, he adopted, you know, got the ability to, with a vivid imagination, to create his own world within himself. And obviously, the first thing that happened was that his um, sister brought home a boyfriend who had a guitar, and Mike decided, I need to learn that guitar. So that's how he basically started and um, got involved in, you know, Reading Folk Clubs and stuff like that. Um, And became very, very good on the guitar very quickly. And going out on the folk club scene, he saw people, lots of people, and notably saw Bert Jans, um, which moved him. Now, I think anybody who knows Bert Jans' music um, knows how atmospheric and emotional that can be, and I think that, that resonated with him, and he took the records home and tried to learn what Bert was doing. And um, so he, he went forward like that, and um, he'd... Um, composed two long instrumentals that he used to play in folk, which was quite unusual actually in those days. I mean, because we had what was called contemporary folk clubs. It was a new thing. It wasn't the old finger in the air. It was contemporary. And we had Al Stewart and all those people. So he started along a trajectory that would not necessarily lead to tubular bells. That's what's interesting about this book. Um, Plenty of people were doing that, but it was almost like synchronicity and chance and happenstance when you read the book, which is just literally them being interviewed by me, it's all in their own words. And you just get this sense of inevitability. That's, that's what I would say, you know, and that's what got to me. But when mu- I, musically, he's, he's very interested in, in um, Hank Marvin, wasn't he? Yeah, he's the Shadows. Really, yeah. He's played in the Shadows group, and yeah. he was in this folk group, the Sally Angie, yeah. with his sister in 1969. Yeah, so he was only 15 at the time. Yeah. And you don't have to listen to this record to know really what it sounds like, So I've written down three of the track titles. They are Children <laughs> of the Sun, exactly. Banquet on the Water, yeah. and Midsummer Night's Happening. You see, I so, remember, you know, I remember yeah. that year, so, every, every record had a cha- track called Children of the Sun. Didn't no, they wouldn't have. Just about. Yeah. It was, they, they started without the track listing and just yeah. added in. There's some other ones. Yeah, other, yeah, other yeah, the the only problem I've got with Children, the whole thing's ruined for me. Children of the Sun, I'm there. You know, but then it's ready, and I go, oh no. 
I've lost it. <laughs> Should have been Stonehenge. No, but yeah, I think it was what was going on at the time. I mean, Nat Joseph, it was Transatlantic Records, you know, that's basically what they signed. But a lot of the, the composition, I mean, he had a lot of bad luck in his life, a lot of really terrible luck. I think one of his, his younger brother died, and yeah, his Down mother Syndrome, was understandably, yeah. that's right. Yeah, not very well, mental health Yeah, problems, and so yeah. he and he'd had a very bad LSD experience, which tangled up his thoughts, and he became yeah. this really insular, um, very introspective character, you know, in his room, writing music on his own very well, so, so he had the I get the impression reading about him that he had he had the musical talent but he didn't have any of the people skills that no, helped, that's right. helped that's you exa- get on that's exactly right he was very introvert and I think what I got from interviewing him was you know people were a necessary evil but better off when they're gone <laughs> so yes. I think that was and I, obviously I think we can all understand you know, Pink Floyd did a lot of albums who followed did Dark Side of the Moon, but to do what he did was astonishing. And the phenomena of it would freak anybody out. I mean, just, it took off. And I don't think there was, you know, they, they were kind of making up as it went along. Let's, let's talk about how this happened, because he was, he, was for, he was bass player with Kevin Ayers and the whole world, is that right? Uh, yeah, but it was really when he got, did session stuff for Arthur Louis Band, which is like a, a Jimi Hendrix clone kind of thing. And basically it was only because Branson... The two hippies that were building a studio, which was Simon Hayworth and Tom Newman especially, had that mentality. And um, Richard was worried that there was no money coming in. So he thought, well, it's the matter, we can have a rehearsal place. So they quickly rigged up a sort of demo studio in another part of the place. And they were given a, a day's notice by Richard. And Arthur Louis turned up. And we go to Simon Hayworth, story where he says, as he says in the book, I'll never forget it, you know, coming downstairs, because it's residential, into the kitchen, he said, in there in the corner was this guy hunched over, what turned out to be a B.O. called, a tape recorder of the time, and playing something, and I, he said, I went over to him, and he was like, you know, quite nervous, and Simon's the most lovely, affable person, you couldn't refuse Simon, with his lovely smile. Basically, pressed the button and came out. And it turned out that um, Mike had done some early demos and gone around the music industry and tried to sort of see people to get a deal. And everybody says, no, you know, you've got to put voice on it, you've got to put drums on it. And a couple of people um, literally sat him down for his own good and said, look, you know, if this came out, nobody would buy it. Nobody would buy this album. You know, we, you know, you're a lovely guy. We're trying to help you, and it, unless it's just not commercial, it's not commercial. You know, which is really kind of ironic, really. Well, so. <laughs> but in defence of those people, they were right, weren't they? Really? <laughs> I mean, you know, it's just go through. I want to go through this process here because because he, he leaves. He leaves. Uh, Kevin Ayers breaks up the band. Yeah, boing. And, and so my Goldfield is 19 years old or whatever mm. he is, 18, 19. And, and the, the detail that fascinates me about the Mike Oldfield story most is that this serene, pastoral piece of music was first, you know, he first did a demo of it in Tottenham, in yeah. a really unpromising street in Tottenham. He was yeah. left on his own in this flat, wasn't he? And I think the only thing that he was left with was a tape recorder. Yeah, but again, this speaks to his inner world that he created because of the stress. I mean, people who are in emotional stress when they're young, tend to create sort of fantasy world. And, and that's part of creativity. He was brilliant at doing that. I mean, his confidence 
when I spoke to him in, in his own world that he's created, and he said, you, you know, he, he, always, he said he always knew it was great, etc. So his confidence in his own world was counterbalanced against the people that couldn't actually understand what Ellie was doing. But, but having a really basic tape recorder in those days yeah. was like having the keys to the kingdom, wasn't it? Absolutely. Be- I won myself, yeah. Because, they were, I mean, n- people didn't have that kind they of equipment, no, did they? Exactly. At all. You know, so I wouldn't have got it. So my, my uncle was into it. He gave me one, gave me a ferrograph of all things. And you, you didn't know, you just start fiddling around with it. And he worked out a way of... Uh, putting some tape over the array's head so he could sort of do sound on sound. It's like recording one track and then doing something on top. And everybody was doing that in different places, but we all thought we'd be the only ones that were doing it. Mm-hmm. And Tom Newman was doing it. I was, other people were doing it. And so there was a bit of a technology thing, but I think he was driven within himself um, to do what he did emotionally, and he had huge confidence in what he was doing. I mean, he didn't defer to anybody. But also, it was a kind of perfect storm of coincidences because he met Tom Yes, that's Newman. right. That's right. Uh, Branson had just set up a student magazine, I think, and was looking that's right. to, to expand. And then he bought the manor with... I was thinking there's some money. In your book, you said there's some money from his aunt uh, who lent him the money. Tom but Newman. I had a huge interest. So his yeah. aunt was making loads of money. No, but the, but the thing is, that was Tom Newman's. It wasn't Branson's idea, right? Basically, Tom Newman went to Albion Street and tried to hustle Richard... To get, he said. He says in the book, he said, I was totally selfish. I just wanted a room in there to set up my tape recorders, and he basically sort of suggested to Richard, you know, about studio, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And he was just trying to get get into that situation. So what happened then was there was a sort of church, a church up the road, right, um, from where they were, and they went and looked at that with an idea of maybe they could um, put a studio in there because there was sort of some deal going on. And um, so Tom did some plans, but at the same time, um, George Martin was living in the same area and took the plans to George Martin, who looked at the plans and said, well, it makes sense and everything, but you're going to need a bigger place, right? So Tom goes and gets Country Life magazine, starts scanning through Country Life magazine, right? This is your hippie biker guy that you wouldn't trust your wife with, let alone anybody else, right? So it's basically... He starts doing that, and he sees this manor house, and he rushes up and shows Richard this manor house. And then Richard and he went down and bunked into the place without an appointment. He got over the fence and went and looked round. And um, as Tom says in the book, you know, it was £30,000, right? He says, might Is as that well, what he cost? Yeah, it might as well have been a million, he said. But then, of course, Branson just goes off to Auntie Joyce, because, you know, Branson's like... Tom Newman's for council estate, like I am, and Branson went to Stowe, etc., and of course gets the money on this kind of pretty tough deal his auntie you gave to him, you had to pay back monthly and stuff like that. So you've got all these things coming together. But when you read the book, which you know, you can go on Mr. and Mrs. Wikipedia and find other things out, but not what's in this book, the driving force that led to Tubular Bells was Tom Newman, because of this one really important reason. Mike had been refused by everybody. Uh, and when he got to Tom Newman, the story is Tom said, I'm at the mixing desk trying to do something. And suddenly, this, I got my personal space was invaded by someone thrusting the tape at me, going, Simon Hayward says, you're the boss. And he says, yeah, OK, so what? What's the problem? He said, listen to this tape. It's really good. So he said, OK, I will. Go away. And he didn't. And then so Mike comes at him again a couple of weeks later and says, have you listened to it? Have you listened to it? 
And so Tom goes upstairs to his residence, bringing the manor, and puts it on a, a tape recorder. And he said, I couldn't come down. He said, I was just entranced by it. He said, I just felt I'd follow... It's like the Pied Piper Hamlin, I think he describes it as. He says, I think I would have followed him over the cliff. You know, he was just so taken by it. And then his emotion back at Mike was something, I think, that Mike hadn't experienced, that somebody... And then, of course, Simon joined in. And then the first real session that was done there was, of course, Bonzo Blood Doodah Band. It couldn't have been a better group of people because they joined in with the community spirits and you had them all there, Mike was there, Hugger Mugger all together. So you had this kind of alternative thing. And Branson would only come down every other week and he'd start food fights and entertain everybody. And ride Always around useful, that, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, right. Food fights. Ride around on... on, on Fly aeroplanes, model aeroplanes. You can see him riding around on the motorbike, you know. But it's just interesting. Branson had no real interest in music at all. I mean, I think his favourite record was uh, Bachelor yeah, Boy yeah, by, yeah, but by Tom Cliff Newman, Richard. Tom Newman, said, Tom Newman said of Richard Branson, he said, Richard Branson had the musical ear of a dead stoat. Yeah, <laughs> right, that's right, right, yeah. Basically, well, I think it was Simon Draper. But Simon Draper was his cousin. Yeah, who was the kind of cousin, man. Yeah, yeah. And that was the guy who, who was really pushing for it. Yeah. And they recorded at night, didn't they? Because they didn't oh, have no, any they... money. And so when the other bands had gone out... And then yeah. there was another extraordinary story about... Um, I think it was John Cale who was, who was in the studio before. And, and I all feel concocted this list of all these bizarre instruments he wanted and as they were taking out John Cale's uh, instruments there was some tubular bells yeah, said, at which point he said can we just can we leave, leave that, that, one? Leave that. Branson yeah. said which I thought was really interesting he said that had that moment he yeah. said without that moment there yeah. would be no you know virgin there would be no virgin exactly. space yeah, exactly. you know enterprise none of these things would exist if it hadn't been for the moment that they called it tubular bells and had the tubular bells on that, it which that's a it. funny thing and Bran- Branson got the list of instruments that Mike wanted when they eventually decided to do it and, um, you know, he looked at him and thought, God, this is too expensive and all the rest of it. You know, because you have to remember, um, they were making all this up as they went along, Simon, Tom, Edward, Phil Newell, who'd been at Pi, right, and did know about studios. Simon didn't know anything about studios. He'd studied sort of stage production at Lambda and he'd gone to Tangerine Studios at one point and he arrived down on Albion Street in Synchronicity met Tom Newman, who liked him from the start. And he said, yeah, it's a great... And he said, come on, let's go to the manor. Not, you know, not an interview. So this was going on incredibly quickly. But they all got into this sort of spirit. So it was them and us, you know. There were, there were the people up in London, Branson and Draper and all that. But then there were the hippies, you know, doing their own thing. So Mike was sort of... But how much did Tom... It influenced that record because I mean, it's, it's, it, he came in with lots of ideas. Massively, it's a picture of Tom on the top right of yeah. the uh, picture there, um, because he he was the one. Who, I think you said he was born on a on a, on a barge and grew up on a barge in yeah, Richmond, and he had this amazing idea about kind of spatial sounds. That's it. He, he and, was a bit like Mike. He he, he was brought up um, on a, on a barge and which was moored in Richmond near Richmond. And he says himself, you know, he lived in his own world, etc. He says, you, the picture sort of develops into a bunch of very introverted people who have, you know, depth of emotion. At the same time, you have sort of the chaos of the hugger-mugger kind of community down there. And um, it was really, the recording of it was so primitive to compare to now. I mean, some of the things they had to do, which I'll tell you about, I mean... For a start off, when they were in Albion Street, they, you know, it was four track that we're going to do. Then we're going to do an eight track, and actually, Phil New built an eight track, and it just got stored away, and they brought it down. But then Richard had said, "Well, George Martin's talking about sixteen tracks. We should 
get a 16 trap machine. Let's like, just have an idea. As you do, let's get a 16 trap machine. Well, those were cutting edge machines at the time. So they're in there. But Simon and Tom didn't know anything about it. So they would like, have Phil Newell around. So Tom would say to you know, Lino and to Phil and say, well, he gets together and say, what does he mean by foldback? So they were actually learning as they went. Now, with a 16-track, mostly what we used to do is you put bass drums, you know, keyboards and that on a number of tracks, and then you'd overdub yeah. other instruments and other tracks. Not with tubular bells. They had to do one track at a time. And not only did they do one track at a time, because there was no automation, no computers, etc., you might get an instrument guitar playing... And then that track would change to another instrument on the same track. They didn't know where they, they didn't were. Know where they were, so the they had a track sheet that was long, and they put it on the floor and try and work out. And Mike used to go like crazy because you know he'd get in the vibe a bit, and then it'd go out of time, right? And they had to stop. And then timing was on the you know the, the, the punching in of the tape, which is when you press record. From the thing, but there was no counter on that, and so Simon had to shout at Tom. And sometimes, when they were trying to mix, they didn't have enough hands, so they got people in off the, virtually off the street to come and put the faders up. I mean, this really is what happened. I mean, it was just crazy. And, and, uh, and halfway through it, uh, Branson and, and Simon Draper try and sell this to other record companies. To record companies, they don't have a record company themselves. No, no, just, no. And nobody wants to buy it. Well, the thing is, <laughs> nobody wants. No, you know, you can go to Medium in that days was where you went to do all the deals. But basically, nobody thought it was something that could happen. But meanwhile... But Branson came back and said, you've got to put vocals on this. And they, yeah, they, they, yeah, Mike yeah, then yeah. came into the studio, am I right, and just delivered this kind of went, rant ah, of kind yeah. of insane vocals, yeah. which in fact finish up somewhere in the record. Isn't uh, it? Well, that's the caveman bit, isn't it? Yeah. But, but, but I mean, according to them, which is like, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm often around Cambridge because I live near there. And, you know, when I talk to students, nobody studies, they all get drunk down the pub. So according to them, that's what they used to do, go and drink Guinness down the pub which, in fact, doesn't... When you think of a load of hippie lads drinking Guinness down the pub and you listen to the first ten minutes of Tubular Bells, there's no connection between the emotion in that and a bunch of boys larking about. Typical of men, frightened of emotion. I'm not going to say anything. We're push. We're down the pub. We're drinking. That's what it is. And then you get... So then again, that's that. If you like, there was a drive... Tom had a passion about um, the album, and Mike, of course, had a passion, and so did Simon, and that was where the triangle came between those three people. And come what may, they were going to get it done, but technically, it's a miracle. It's a miracle that they did it. It's also... strikes me, it didn't exist until they recorded it, that's if that quite, doesn't sound... That's right. It, it has no form, it has no written that, that's form, right. That's right. He had not performed it, no, the it, whole thing, had he? Ideas, when it, Tom says when he got there, he, it wasn't complete, he had a, the bit, bits of it, but not the whole thing. So it developed as they went along. And it along. didn't really have any precedent, did it? We were talking about this no, earlier, no. You know, the echoes by, by well, Pink Floyd care about a couple of years Riley, before, but that's kind of a... Terry Riley. Terry Riley but that was just repeat yeah. riffs. So, yeah. I mean, yeah. the, 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 I, I would say, if it was down to me, which I suppose it is in a way, um, I'd say there was, there was basically never anything to equal the emotion that was in that music. From, and he was young, innocent boy, and very beautiful, you know, so I think that was the thing that was um, 
significant and it resonated with people at the time and it still does now. 20 million plus albums it sold, still selling, still selling, you know. And if you meet a Tubular Bells fan, I mean, they are passionate about the music, you know. People have been interviewed and, you know, if your house burnt down, what would you take with you? And they say, well, as long as I've got my Tubular Bells album, I'll be fine about it. You know, it's, it engenders that kind of feeling in people. So when it first came out, yep. remind me, yep. it was just Tubular Bells 1 and yep. Tubular Bells 2. There, was no, there were no track divisions, were there? That was A-side, B-side. Yeah, okay, so if you go and look at it now on iTunes or whatever, yeah, yeah. it's tracks. Yeah. It's individual bits with names. Yeah. It all seems wrong to me. Yeah, well, it was, you know, I mean, what, hindsight's a good, great, but basically it was a continuous piece of work and it went from this to that to the other. And uh, that was, the, it was kind of an emotional narrative, really. But you see, that's what everybody got excited about. Yeah, the idea so. that it was continuous piece of work. Because don't forget, I was reading only the other day, the person who wrote the rave review of this and the listener was John Peel. Yeah. yeah, and he played the album. He played the whole album. A whole album, which yeah. nobody ever did. That and what everybody went on about was, oh, it's sustained. Yeah. yeah. It's like classical music. Yeah. It, you know what I mean? That, yeah. There's a lot of snob appeal in the in the original. You know, I'll confess, I went and bought it. I bought this record and a snob appeal. I was a complete sucker for that because wow. I was looking for something long form. Well, I remember, without dropping names, talking to Pete Townsend, who paid for my original demos, actually, about... Um, Tommy, and how that was called yeah. a rock opera, you know, and always had to be. And there was this quote from Bob Dylan um, when he's talking about people were talking about Nobel prizes, and apparently said, you know, for literature, and he said, well, he said, all right, he said, but when they give one, you know, a Nobel prize for songwriting, then I'll get interested. So it was always we always had to be have something on opera, this that, and the other, and people still today. <laughs> Call, call rock music pop music. But there was a sort Even of vogue. There was a vogue for, for long form, wasn't it? Yeah. You know, 2001, the movie. It's, yeah. right, in the, it's right in the middle of the golden George age Harrison's, of the LP. Yeah, George Harrison's triple album, Back yeah, to yeah, Death. You know, yeah, I mean, yeah. everybody, the idea of something long and challenging yeah. and interesting. But, 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 but even, even though that's true, it still doesn't account for the amazing success of Jubilee Bells. No touring bands. One gig... Which Branson, Quinnison before, and he didn't want to do it. And Branson, the deal was, gave him his his Rolls Royce, wherever it was, you know, which was rusting and fell apart. Mike was terrified. Well, they were actually on the way in the bend. That was on the way way to the gig. He was driving him. He had a panic panic attack and didn't want to go through it. And so they got Mick Taylor there. And apparently, as it says in the book, Mick Jagger came with Mick Taylor. And basically, Mike remembers that he, you know, he calmed him down. He was then supportive of him. And Mike thought it would be a disaster. They played the gig, and at the end of it, Mike thought everybody would boo and throw things. And he just thought it was terrible, you know, what had been done. Of course, they all gave him a standing ovation. So, again... It's it's just an extraordinary phenomenon. But it was but a that, terrifying thing to do, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, of course. It's yeah. music that you'd only assembled while recording it. Yeah. And, and then you were going to sit down and then yeah. you had to learn it. Yeah, but the worst thing yeah. Mike said to me was, writing the bloody thing out. Yeah. He had to write yeah. all the parts out. Imagine that. You know, it's like writing out. And then he has to sort of think, OK, but are they going to play it as well as I did? You know, which is... <laughs> it's apart, from, apart from Nick it. Drake, I can't think of anybody less cooperative and less... Less kind of, um, you know, disposed towards promotion, and he, he wouldn't do any interviews. That's, that's I mean, right. was, yeah. And so it sold without all that, which is quite interesting. It in took itself. a while to sell, didn't yeah. it, in Britain? I, uh, it, 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 
slowly. I mean, he got a lot of attention. He got the right reviews. And as I say, John Peel raved about it and played it on the radio and so forth. But there weren't that many radio outlets. That's at the true. Time, you know? that, that's there weren't a, that many places that could play. That's yeah. a great point. I mean, people go on about that. It was going on about The Exorcist. But the album was huge before the, it got used in The Exorcist, yeah. way before it got used in The Exorcist. So I think what we're talking about here is more like a case for The X-Files than anything else. You know, it's like it's a mythological... Um, phenomena, and I and I think I was just you know having done the. I remember I did all the interviews and went home and I started playing, and I just playing them back to myself. Well, this is crazy, and I just I just thought it was wonderful that they did it, and, and it built Virgin Records. It saved Virgin. Yeah, records. that's right. Yeah. So Virgin Records, of course, what that was about was. Richard Branson had reached, let's put it, a certain point in his financial profile. So it was a time to do something. So Tom originally had suggested to Branson about the label, half joking, didn't think he would, you know, go through it. So what did they do? 001 was basically, was, was Tubular Bells. And out it came. And then, of course... Once that started happening, the Richard Branson magic kicked in. Because when there was marketing to be done, then Richard really went for it, as, as only Richard can. And obviously, the, the gig and all the rest of it. Um, but the joke was, when it took off, as Tom says in the book, and they said, they never even got a thank you. Let alone Tom didn't get any money well, for Mike it. Mike did renegotiate Tom Newman's lot, deal lot, long time later, later, and he now gets one percent of it. One percent he got. Because again, yeah. you could argue without Tom, without Tom Newman, there'd be no Virgin Records. You know, a guy who produced virtually no one before and virtually no one afterwards, apart from a couple of Doll by Doll albums. Well, he know. did. Mike did work with Mike. Yeah, Mike worked with Mike. Mike, yeah. Mike but, well, I think that was probably it. I mean, if you think about it, in a sense, you could look at it that Mike became. And Tom became a bit of a kind of band yeah. together in, in a production studio thing, I mean. So it's hard to imagine how would you follow all of this. So, but Tom, yeah, I think he was, he was it, the book, the hero of the book for me, yeah, is Tom. Because I, because don't forget, the title of the book is The Making of Tube and the Origin. So, so how is it made? Not just the music, and and I think Tom and Simon and everybody um, had just and they Simon said something great to me. He said, "You know, we were all naive, and so that's why we didn't have we couldn't judge it against anything because there'd never been a residential studio before the man, and so there was nothing to live up to. There was nothing to." Hold them back. And there's two, there seem to be two reasons why it must have sold so well around the world. One, I guess, because it was instrumental. Yeah. You know, and it didn't have any words, any English words apart from Yeah, the very thing that Richard Branson didn't like about it. The very thing he didn't like, exactly, the very thing that Branson didn't really want to was the gold. Which would have reduced it, you know. And the other thing was when it got picked up by The Exorcist, you know. And it's hard to believe now that, you know, that that helped. Well, the story that William Friedkin, who made The Exorcist, he'd commissioned a soundtrack for The Exorcist and he didn't like it yeah. and that being Hollywood you're allowed to just not like it oh, you know? and uh, he was in he was in a publisher and, uh, and they said there's a load of you know there's a load of records over there yeah, and he yeah. just pretty much went through them yeah and he found something that was a combination of Tubular Bell's music and Mike Oldfield talking and he thought that'll do 
Yeah. And he just heard that spooky opening theme. Yeah. And he yeah. thought, that'll work. And he was absolutely right. I was right. I've only ever seen Exorcist once, and I'm <laughs> too terrified to see <laughs> no, no, it again. No, no. Uh, but but I, all I can remember was, that wasn't there a sort of projectile vomiting oh, and a head yeah. turning around while Mike Oldfield was playing the back? Yeah, was like, oh, well, in some ways, you're amazed it helped the sales of the record. Yeah. yeah. yeah but it's, it's the childlike quality of it played against the kind of horror of the film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, I think it was the opening, the opening shots of, you know, we get the priest, there he is in the, in the mist. Walking up to the thing, and then you've got this, this amazingly atmospheric music. But again, I mean, I remember Ridley Scott talking about this kind of thing, and he said, when he was asked, he said, You take the music out of a movie. And in fact, they did. They did, they did a thing where they actually did for students and everything take a famous movie and take the music off of it. And the effect it had has on the atmosphere and something like that. So there's so much emotional information in music yes. that you need that to combine with what's going on and I think you know there's an awful lot of emotional information in the first 15 minutes of Tubular Bells I think 20 million people can't be wrong <laughs> so of course the amazing thing about Tubular Bells is that you know Michael Field's done other things since yeah, but yeah. he's never he's never surpassed it no. and Tubular Bells is one of those pieces of work that Sprouts seems to sprout an entire industry yes. ar- around it. Yeah. This is a tubular brass. Yeah, where, that's uh, right. Yeah, they're the great success doing yeah. tubular yeah, bells yeah. Uh, it, with, with the brass band. And of course, he went back and did it again. I know. That's what it really made me angry. That did. <laughs> I mean, I really, I really, and then he did it again. You know, so I thought, I'm not, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do this. You know. And he was, oh yeah, I've redone re- it. And he's just an Omidorn, isn't he? That's the, the, the you can't blame him. No, I don't blame him. <laughs> people I mean, bought but, it. People wanted it. You but, know. But, but it wasn't, you know, I think people were kind of realistic about it. But I, I do, you know, if I might say something about my, in my industry, that you know, it's been my life. I mean, there's a lot to be proud of, you know, for the creativity that comes out of our industry and, and, and the amazing music that we made. And this is an iconic album from that time, like a lot of albums are. The other great shot in the arm it got was there was the, uh, the well there's the 30th anniversary there we are yep, there's yep. the limited edition uh, etc I mean it just the, it, it keeps on rolling and that's but the, years ago the gift that keeps on giving yeah exactly and uh, but the the Olympic opening ceremony yeah, is fascinating one. you know um, yeah. where Danny Boyle he had tried to get Elvis Costello and he tried to get um, David Bowie and they they refused to do it and he tried all sorts of people but he also tried Mike he'd been out to see yeah. him in the Bahamas you know and you signed Mike for a pound it? all yeah. the musicians got one pound yes. to, to appear Absolutely. Um, and that that was an extraordinary thing because if I remember rightly it's in the NHS that's section right. isn't yeah, it with the it. dancing nurses on the hospital yeah. beds it's absolutely incredible but again, supercharged the, same, the, 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 the atmosphere of it but yeah. the, the, the interesting thing is you think Mike would be the last person that would ever have done that because he's very shy, etc. Yeah, yeah. But he did, and that's when something really weird happens to me because basically, but I'd done the interviews back in in the day, all that time ago, and my phone went crazy. All these people saying, oh, "You've got to bring out a good moment," which is quite funny. They brought out the ultimate Mike Oldfield box set of Jubilee Bells, you know, with book inside and everything. <laughs> and somebody said, "You've got to go online and look at Amazon." So I went on, and this guy. These guys would give a review of the box set, and they said, "But you still got to get Richard Newman's book." <laughs> yeah, so yeah. it was like, "Okay, right." So, so, yeah, yeah. so it was, um, it was very interesting. And I feel, yeah, well, see, people say these things, awards. Oh, I feel so privileged, but I really do. I feel that 
it wasn't easy for him to uh, him or Tom Newman actually to open up to me because Tom was very angry when I interviewed him and he told me right that he'd had a, a contract for a third of Virgin Records which was, he put in a drawer and never got it signed so he was angry because he didn't get much money out of it he, he was angry for lots of reasons I think because um he was idealistic and they had a community down and I just think he felt that um, it wasn't really recognised how much they had contributed by building the studio and making everything work to the ability of there to be a Virgin Records, to be quite honest. And there's no arguing with it. I mean, basically, yeah, from yeah. There, there isn't anything you can say about that. It's not my job as an interviewer, as you know, to say anything. You just hear it from people, but... There was there was some emotion, you know. I mean, you know, when you listen to him talking on the tape, you know, he, he, a lot of it comes out clearly. And I think, and the other thing that was interesting about it is Simon didn't ever do any anything with him again. I think after Jubilee Bells, so the the band broke up, so to speak. It did. It, 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 well, it, it is one of the most extraordinary and um, happiest accidents in the yeah, history. Absolutely yeah. right. Yeah, <laughs> the music is, industry. I quite agree. With it you. is one of the things that happens in the music industry. The most interesting things happen by accident they in do. the music industry. There's another idea for a book. But yeah. meanwhile, thanks very much for talking to us about this on this on this anniversary of, of Tubular Bells. Richard Newman, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you. This podcast was brought to you by The Worry. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.